Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. Romans chapter 7, beginning in verse 7. And the word of the Lord reads, What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but then the commandment came and sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through that which, through that, through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. This is the word of the Lord. The late Jerry Bridges once wrote, Love provides the motive for obeying the commandments of God, but the law provides specific direction for exercising love. So last Wednesday evening, Kim, um, Carson, McKaylee, and I were all of us headed to California City, and we were headed for dinner because uh, we were meeting some family in order to celebrate our nephew's 14th birthday. And we decided to take Carson's car, and so he was doing the driving. Uh, and as we were driving on the road uh, to California City, the California City cutoff there between 58 and California City Boulevard, um, we were on the two-lane stretch of that, and it was a dark, you know, two-lane road. And Carson commented on how bright the lights were of a vehicle that was coming toward us. And I took a moment to kind of take the opportunity to teach him a little bit about how to drive. And I told him that when you see bright lights like that, instead of staring directly into the light, just look at the side of the road where the line is. Uh, That way your eyes are fixed on the road and not so much on the lights. And I no more than get those words out that I realized the driver in the vehicle was headed our direction really fast and had shifted into our lane uh, and was coming straight for us. And in a moment, in an instant, I began to believe that my family and I were about to have a head-on collision. And I remember thinking that we're probably not going to survive. And and then I remember Carson getting on the brakes and starting to steer towards the shoulder. And then at the very last second, the other vehicle swerved and got back in its lane and passed us without any contact. Naturally, once reality set in, we were all emotional and especially given the loss that our community has recently faced under similar circumstances. In fact, I had just that Saturday before presided over a funeral of the two young people who were killed in that accident. And uh, 
And in my heart, after the initial shock, was moved to gratitude towards God for sparing our lives. Obviously, gratitude's been on my heart. We've been talking about it for the last three weeks. And uh, I was very grateful, and I became introspective. And I reminded myself of some important things that I need to continually do in my life. That is, number one, tell everyone that you know that you love them. Those that you love ought to know that you love them. Do not leave them guessing. Those that you are proud of need to know that you're proud of them. Right? Those that mean something to you need to know that because life is short. Secondly, we need to forgive quickly and settle accounts very fast. Don't carry around grudges because you don't know when you can ever settle that. Right? Make your peace with those around you. You never know when you will never have another chance to make things right. And third, and most importantly, share the gospel with everyone that you come in contact with. Because life is short, and we will all day, we will all one day die, and all of us will come face to face with God, and He will judge everyone. Those that you love, those that you don't love your neighbors, your friends, your family, right? As we're told by Paul in Hebrews chapter 9, it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Now, why do I tell you this story this morning? Well, because that's the reason why we have been and continue to be in this sermon series on the letter to the Romans titled, The Power of the Gospel. Because life is short, and the gospel the gospel is the most important message that you can share with anyone, especially those that you love. The gospel is the most important message that anyone could speak or hear. It is the message that the world needs to hear. The gospel really is the only hope that we have. Because here's the truth. We, can all, we all will take our turns and step across into eternity. Every single one of us. And you don't know when that is going to happen. And it will not matter when that happens, how amazing your life here on earth was. It will not matter if you made every bit of the money that you wanted to make. It will not matter if you were liked and famous. It will not matter how amazing your experiences have been if you have done all that you wanted to do and ate all the food you wanted to eat and had all the sex you wanted to have and had done all the things that you wanted to do here on earth. The only thing that's going to matter is are you or are you not in right relationship with God? Period. If you are, then it will be joy and peace everlasting. If not, then it's an eternity of torment. That's it. And the rest of your life, good or bad, whether it was wonderful or whether it was horrible, will be completely immaterial at that time. That's why we are walking deliberately through the letter to the Romans. Because Paul's letter to the Romans is the clearest, most complete exposition of the gospel in the entire Bible. We know what we know about the gospel because of what Paul, what God had done through Paul. Right? Paul in this letter explains what, how the, gospel, what the gospel is, how the gospel works, and then how we as Christians are to live in light of the truth of the gospel. The gospel is the most important message we can share with those that we love and those that are around us. 
Because as Paul declares in the beginning of the letter, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to those who believe. The gospel, the message of Jesus Christ is the power of God to save. Not fancy churches, not charismatic and compelling preachers, not ministries of mercy, right? not even the love of Christian people. The gospel is the power of God for salvation for those who believe. The gospel is the very power of God to bring those who were not in right relationship with God in relationship with Him. Well, after making this declaration, Paul then begins to explain what the gospel is. It's the bad news that all of mankind is covered in sin and under the wrath and judgment of God for that sin. But it's the good news that God has made a way for all of mankind to be saved from sin and the wrath of God. And that is by, by grace, through faith, and the finished work of Christ on the cross. Now, after Paul explains what the gospel is in chapters 1 through 4, he begins to explain the benefits of the gospel for the believers. In the first part of chapter 5, if you remember, the benefits include peace with God, where we were once enemies with God, where we were once rebels against God. We now have peace with Him. Not just peace that in an end of hostility, but peace and well-being in every part of our life. Right? These benefits also include um, reconciliation to God as, as family members. Where we were once His enemies, we are now His children. And because of that, we have access to His grace, and we have proof of God's love for us and that Christ had died for us. And then he says that we have the gift of the Holy Spirit pouring out God's love in our hearts tangible, wonderful benefits of the gospel. And then after explaining that, Paul, in the middle of chapter 5, begins to explain how the gospel works. How is it then that mankind, all of men, universally, are, are sinful? But even more importantly, how can sinful man be reconciled to God through the gospel apart from, from works that we do? Well, Paul explains that, that we were born in Adam, sharing his curse and subject to his fallen nature. But by faith, by faith, we are united to Christ, the second Adam. And as a result, we share in Christ's death to sin and his resurrection to new life in God. And because Christ is our new federal head, our new representative by faith, our sins are atoned for by Jesus' work on the cross and his righteousness is credited to us as if it's our own. So we now then, because of Jesus, have a right standing with God. That's how the gospel works. And then beginning in chapter 6, Paul begins to address some of the objections raised against the gospel because for some reason, many people struggle with the idea that we are justified by grace through faith in Christ apart from what we can do for God. In fact, many people believe that being saved by grace means that, that we have been given a license to sin. Both the legalists and the antinomians believe that. But Paul destroys that notion by pointing out the fact that, that those who have been saved have been supernaturally changed by God and have a new nature. And Paul says that those who come to faith have died to sin and have been set free from its power and mastery. And because of their union with Christ, those who trust in Jesus will by nature, as the fruit of their salvation, live for the glory of God, and by His grace grow in obedience to God's command. And so salvation is by grace alone, but it's not a license to sin. Now, along that same vein, in chapter 7, 
into chapter 8, Paul will continue to address the issue of God's law and obedience and how those things relate to those who have been saved by grace. And as we talked about a few weeks ago, there is an issue that creates, if there is an issue that creates confusion in many people, if there is an issue that creates confusion for, for the world around us, if there's an issue that creates confusion even for some who call themselves Christians, it is the law of God and what that law means for those of us who call ourselves Christians. And, and understand, this isn't a new phenomenon. This isn't something that just happened in the 21st century. This is an issue that faced even the early church. That's why Paul has to address this so many times in the, book, in the letter to the Romans. As I mentioned before, Paul uses the Greek word for law 51 times in this letter. 27 of those times is from chapter 7, verse 1 through chapter 8, verse 4. 27 times Paul addresses the issue because it's at the heart of the biggest objection to the gospel. Because for so many people, the law of God and the gospel are completely incompatible. For so many people, the law and the gospel seem to be polar opposites. For so many people, the law is, is made irrelevant because of the gospel. If you're saved by grace, then why do you need the law? They reason. There's many people who see the law of God as not bearing at all on the Christian life, not the moral law, not even the Ten Commandments. And any discussion of obedience, any discussion of repentance by, by those who would talk about it are rejected out of hand as legalists because, because what does the law have to do with the gospel? You can't, they can't see how the gospel of grace and the law of God are compatible. In fact, many will use the scripture in Romans 6.14, which reads, you're not under the law, but under grace as a proof text that the law doesn't matter anymore for Christians. These people, as we've talked about, are called antinomians. This is from the, from the Latin word that literally means no law. Those who believe in no law. They believe that since we've been saved by grace, the law of God given in the Old Testament is irrelevant and has no bearing in the life of the believer. Now, on the other hand, there are those who believe that the gospel, you know, those they, they, they claim to believe the gospel, but they say that salvation by grace alone is untrue because of the law. Because how can the law be that reveals God's character? How can that law then be set aside? How can we be saved by grace alone since the Bible also then commands us to be obedient to God's law? There are many people who believe that faith just simply isn't enough and that you must obey some set of rules to prove that you have faith, that you are a Christian. Some will say that you have to keep the Ten Commandments, that it's mandatory for your life. Others will say that you have to keep the entire Torah. Others will say that you have a whole new set of rules to, to keep to prove that you're Christians, like haircuts and dress codes and things like that. These people are, as we called, as we've said before, legalists. And legalists come in many shapes, in many flavors, in many attitudes. Right? And we spent quite a bit of time talking about that the last time as well. But the thing that we need to keep in mind as we continue to move forward is both of these perspectives, both of these points of view are in error. Both antinomianism and legalism are errors that distort, that distort the truth of the gospel. 
Because it is true, we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But it is also true that those who are truly saved have been transformed and will, will by, as a byproduct over time, grow in obedience to the law of God. And that is the overarching point that Paul is making as we go through this section. The moral law, the law of God is still relevant for everyone, including believers. As Paul says in 1 Timothy 1.8, we know that the law is good if one uses the law lawfully or rightly. Because theologically speaking, the law of God is the revelation of God's own character. It reveals who God is and how God is. The moral law reveals God's righteous character. And because the moral law is God's stand, his character, it's also his standard for righteousness for human beings. God requires moral perfection. God requires moral perfection because God is morally perfect. God is completely just, completely righteous, and He requires that kind of righteousness out of those who be in right relationship with Him. And the moral law revealed in Scripture, summarized in the Ten Commandments, and further summarized by Jesus in the greatest commandment, is the basis on which God will judge the world. God will judge all of humanity by this standard and that, brothers and sisters, is why we need the gospel. Because that kind of righteousness is out of our own reach. That kind of righteousness and that kind of moral perfection is beyond our own ability to live in and attain. We can't fulfill the law of God on our own. We can't live up to that standard no matter how hard it is that we try. That's why we need the gospel. It's impossible for us to attain moral perfection. We need someone to do it for us. And that's exactly what Jesus did. Jesus is the one who kept the whole law on our behalf. And more than that, He is the one who atoned for our sins by His own blood. Our transgressions are blotted out because Christ's atoning work on the cross. And because of this, by faith in Jesus, not only have our sins been forgiven, His perfect righteousness, His perfect law-keeping can be credited to us. Through Christ, we are made righteous in the eyes of God. We are saved by grace through faith in Christ and His finished work on our behalf. By faith, we are declared righteous, perfect according to the law because of what Jesus has done. But here's the thing that we need to remember. The law doesn't go away. The law isn't set aside. The moral law doesn't become irrelevant. It is still the measure of God's character. It is still the standard of righteousness that is required of mankind. And that's why we must come to faith in Christ. That's why we must repent and believe the gospel because without Christ we will be judged by this impossibly, impossibly high standard. And so, yes, we're saved by grace through faith, but the law doesn't go away and is still binding on everyone. It is just those who are in Christ are not depending on their own ability to keep the law. We are depending on Jesus by faith and His keeping the law for us. And those who have come to faith have been set free from the power of sin and are now being empowered by the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit to grow in obedience to God's law, not as the root of our salvation, 
but as the fruit and the outworking of it. Now, in the last section, Paul dealt with the legalist mindset related to the law, and he made it clear that in Christ we have died to the law, and the law, the written code, is no longer our master. Christ is our master. As he said in verse 4, Likewise, my brothers, you have also died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God, the fruit of obedience. Now today, Paul is going to deal with the antinomian perspective. And somehow, right, some people believe that, that again, the law, because of the gospel, is irrelevant and useless. And according to some, the law actually is, is somehow worthless. And some people would even say evil. Look with me in, in verse 7. Paul asked rhetorically, What shall we say? That the law is sin? Is the law itself sin? Now, I don't know about you, but I've read this text many times in my Christian life, and every time I've come to this, it kind of perplexes me. Is the law sin? I mean, from where I've always stood, that seems like a silly question to ask. And my reaction, even as a new convert who didn't really know anything, has always been, well, no, of course it's not sin. It really seems like a bizarre question to ask. But here Paul is asking this question in his diatribe. He's asking and rehearsing this question as if someone had asked this question of him before. Remember, Paul, in the big portion of this letter in Romans, is, is having a two-way conversation with an imaginary person to help express his thoughts. He's having a back-and-forth conversation to illustrate his point. And we see that in Romans chapter 6, verse 1. Paul asks, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in, in, in sin that grace may abound? And then in verse 15 of chapter 6, he asks again, what then? Are we to sin because we're not under law, but under grace? Paul, in this part of the letter, is employing the literary device of a diatribe in order to deal with common objections to his theology. And he does so by asking and answering questions that he has heard many times before. Which means, someone asked this question. Someone has asked, you know, is the law sin? Someone, based on Paul's explanation of the gospel and the law and sin, somehow concluded that the law then must be sin. But how could they have made such a connection? How could they have come to that conclusion? Well, perhaps they noticed, as Paul had been explaining, that in Christ, the believer is freed from both sin and the law. In chapter 6, verse 22, Paul says that we are freed from sin. But then in chapter 7, verse 6, Paul says, but now we are released from the law. In Christ, we've been set free from both sin and the law. Not to mention our release from sin and the law come from the same mechanism. They come from the same place, which is our union with Christ in His death. In chapter 6, Paul says, we have died with Christ. And he says that through that death, we have died to sin. And then in chapter 7, Paul says, we have died to the law through the body of Christ. 
And so in Christ, we are freed from sin and the law to serve our new master Christ. And the way in which we are freed from sin and the law is our union with Christ in his death. Through Christ, Paul has told us that we have died to both. That's the connection that they're making. And that is why some people would ask Paul this question, is the law sin? Because in Christ, we have died to and no longer enslaved to either one, the law or sin. And for, for some people, this relationship between the law and sin then runs even deeper. Some believe that the law is the cause of sin. Some people believe that sin exists because of the law. Some people right, even see the law as evil. But notice Paul responds to this, right? He again uses this expression, by no means. As we've talked about before, this expression is emphatic. It is, it is volatile. He's saying, may it never be, or perish the thought, or God forbid. What Paul is saying is there is no way under heaven and earth is that possible. The law is not sin. The law is not evil. The law is not the cause of sin. It's actually the opposite of sin. In fact, in verse 12, Paul says that the law is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. It's the opposite of sin because sin is what? Unholy. Sin is unrighteousness. Sin is, is not good. But Paul says the law is holy, righteous, and good. The law is complete, the complete opposite of sin. And because the law, like God, is holy. And the law, like God, is righteous, which means, like God, the law is truly good. So, of course, the law isn't sin. Well, if it's not sin, then what is the relationship between the law of God and sin? What is the relationship that seems to be connected here? Well, Paul in this text explains the three dimensions of the relationship of sin and the law. As John Stott points out in his commentary, sin is connected to the law in three essential ways. By the way, this is the part, if you're going to write anything down, this is it, because this is the core of what we're getting at. First of all, the law reveals sin itself. Right? It reveals what sin actually is. Secondly, the law re reveals sin in us. Right? And it does so by provoking the sin that's in us. And third, the law reveals the condemnation of sin. Because the law of God and God himself condemns it. Let us make no mistake that sin is not some accidental little thing that happens it's not something that just gets swept under the rug. It is something that must be dealt with. It is condemned by, by God. That's what we're going to see in this text. The law of God is still relevant for Christians because the law reveals sin itself. This, it reveals the sin that's within us, and then it reveals the condemnation of sin. In fact, let's just take a moment to unpack this a bit. Paul says in verse 7, What then shall we say is the law sin? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. One of the primary purposes of the law is to reveal to us and the world around us what sin is. The law was given as the standard of righteousness to expose and bring to light the sinfulness of sin. 
And, con- and contrary to what legalists believe, the law was not given to make a person right with God through obedience to the law. In fact, Paul said in Romans chapter 3, verse 20, if you remember, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes what? Knowledge of sin. Paul's made it already abundantly clear that no one is going to be able to save themselves by obedience to the law. It's just not going to happen. Because number one, we can't do it. We can't live up to it. And number two, right, that's not even the purpose of the law. The law was not given so that people would, would become righteous on their own by following a list of rules. The purpose of the law was to shine the light of truth in the dark world around us and the darkness of our hearts to help us to see what sin actually is. The law was given to reveal God's perfect righteousness and how we fall short of that and our need to be rescued from that. And this is so important for us as believers and those who are called to go out into the world and share the hope of Christ. This is important because if, if there's one thing the world does not know and doesn't want to know is what sin is. If there's one thing that the world doesn't know and doesn't want to know is what sin is. Right? And you know how I know that? Almost every person in America today believes that right now that if they die, they deserve eternal life rather than hell. Almost every person that you meet believes that if there is a heaven and there's a life after death, they believe that they deserve to go to heaven. And if you ask them, what then is the basis of that belief? Why do you believe that you think that you deserve eternal life? You will find almost all of them universally will say the exact same thing. I am a good person. Universally. That's what they say. I'm a good person. Yeah, I make mistakes. Yeah, I slip sometimes, but I'm a really good person at heart. Right? I'm, I'm, a, I'm a really, really good person. Almost everyone that you meet on the street believes sincerely, not flippantly, but sincerely believe that they're good people. Most people believe that they have within them enough goodness to warrant salvation. And the reason why people believe that is they just do not know what sin is. They don't know it. Because they didn't, right? Because if because they did, they wouldn't see themselves as deserving to go to heaven. And they certainly wouldn't think that their goodness is the basis of their salvation. They don't know what sin is. And because of that, they don't know then how heinous sin is before a holy and righteous God. They don't understand how destructive sin is. They don't understand how much God hates sin and how He will judge it at one point in the future. And because of that, they deny that God Himself then will one day pour out His awful and terrible wrath against sin and those who are found in their sin. Most people don't know what sin is, and there are many people in our culture that have made it their mission to keep it that way. One of the biggest lies that's being perpetuated in the world right now right, by so many people who see themselves as loving and caring and compassionate including many people who claim to be Christians, is the lie that sexual immorality is somehow not sin. Right? Especially when it's 
It's when it's between loving, consenting adults is what they say. Many people, including many who claim to be Christians, will stand up and argue that immoral sexual behavior is not sinful. This includes sex before marriage, promiscuity, pornography, polyamory, which is so weird, and homosexuality. And this lie has been perpetuated long enough that most people believe that to be true. Just, Just listen to the teens in your own community. Almost every junior high and high school student agrees with that. That's why you can get banned, by the way, on social media like that. That's why people have lost their jobs and gotten fired for what they've, what they've publicly said they believe. That's why people get canceled for saying that, that sexual immorality is sin. Right? In fact, focus on the family, a ministry that many people have followed, recently has had their office buildings attacked and graffitied because people are saying their stance on traditional marriage is the catalyst for the shooting that took place recently at an LGBT nightclub in, in Colorado. They're blaming focus on the family for what this one man did. Right? Christians who, who believe the word of God and what it says about marriage are being blamed for the hate crime that's committed by a monster. Because Christians affirm what Bible, the Bible says about, about sexual immorality. That's, that somehow they're responsible for the act of someone who is caught up in deep sin of their own. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. We live in a moment when people call what is wrong right and what is right wrong. We've seen it, all of us. We live in a moment when people without remorse will advocate for the killing of unborn children and the mutilation of the bodies of children who are actually older. Mind-blowing. Did you know that in the state of California, a minor can get an abortion and receive medical help to transition to a different gender without the consent of their parents, but a minor cannot get a tattoo in California even with the parent's consent? Did you know that? A minor can't have some ink put underneath their skin, but they can have their, their body parts mutilated and unborn children ripped out of their bodies even without so much as a word to those that have raised them and loved them. The world around us does not know what sin is. The world around us wants to keep it that way. But the law of God reveals what it is. Paul says, yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would have not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. One of the purposes of the law is to reveal sin, which means the law is indispensable for us if we're going to share the gospel with the world around us. Because the truth is simply this, until we know what sin is, we will, and until we know how sin is, affront, is an affront to God, and how sin has separated us from God, we will never understand truly our need for Christ. We may be attracted to Him. We may be attracted to His ethics. But we will not truly understand why we need Him. Because the gospel makes no sense without understanding what sin is. You see, you can go and tell people that Jesus loves them, which is true, and you should tell people that. But that by itself will not help them to understand their need for Christ. That is not going to help them to understand their need to repent and believe 
That is, that by itself is, is not going to help them to understand their need to pick up their cross daily and follow Jesus. That requires something radical in your life. If you cannot understand, and by the way, I would say that you can't even understand fully Christ's love for you until you understand what he had to do to overcome your sin. And you can tell people all you want to that God has a wonderful plan for their life, which absolutely may be true, right? But that's not going to motivate them away from their idols, including the idol of self, not to mention God's wonderful plan for their life might not be the wonderful plan that they have for their own lives. Because the wonderful plan they might have might include living in a state of rebellion to God. There are some people who really, really, really love their sin. The fact is, if we're going to help people to see and understand their need for Christ, we have to help them to understand what sin is. And the way that we do that is to point them to the objective standard of God's holy and righteous and good law. The law of God is the mirror that we have to hold in front of them so they can see what sin is and see who they really are and understand that they are hopelessly covered in their sin. Because only then will they actually begin to see what they need Jesus for. Only then will they understand the depths then of God's love. Only then will they understand how amazing God's grace and mercy are. The law and, uh, is holy and righteous because it reveals the character of God and it reveals how we fall short of that. The law is good because it helps us to see our desperate need for Christ. And then Paul says in verse 8, but sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment produced in me all kinds of covetousness, for apart from the law, sin lies dead. Not only does the law reveal sin, it reveals the sin in me because it provokes the sin in me. And this is something we all know to be true because we have all, every one of us has experienced it. We've all experienced the moment when someone said, you better not do something. And suddenly there is a brand new urge to do exactly what you were told not to do. There have been times in your life, in my life, when we were happily minding our own business, but then we were told you can't do something or you better not do something. And then out of nowhere, a desire wells up in us to do exactly what we were not supposed to do. John Stott notes that every person since Adam and Eve um, has been enticed by the forbidden fruit. Right? We've all experienced it. The law of God provokes the sin in us. Now understand, the law doesn't make us do something. The law itself doesn't make us do what we don't want to do. The law just simply reveals what is already in us. The sinful nature that we already possessed and the law by revealing to us what is righteous and good also reveals in us our natural desire, our natural desire apart from God is not for what is righteous and good which helps us to understand that by nature, we're not good 
people as so many people suppose. We are sinful creatures who desire to satisfy our own sinful flesh. As Paul describes mankind in in Romans chapter 1, he says that mankind, apart from God, that they are filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haunty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, not only do they do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. Sounds exactly like the culture around us. Paul further says in Romans chapter 3, None is righteous. None, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have, turned, all have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their, throats are, their, their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is on their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are whipped to shed blood. And in their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. The law not only reveals sin, but it provokes the sin in us so that we can see who we really are. And then third, the law condemns sin. As Paul says, I was once alive apart from the law. But now, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me, for sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment deceived me, and through it killed me. Now notice the relationship here. In verse 9, Paul mentions the commandment, and he says, I died. And then in verse 10 again, he mentions the word commandment, and he says, it proved death to me. And then in verse 11, Paul says again, he mentions commandment, and he says, it, it killed me. Well, then what is Paul getting at here? Is he saying that the law brings death to him? Is he saying that the law is what killed him? No. Remember, Paul said, so the law is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. And then right after that, he continues his diatribe and asks the question, did that which is good then bring death to me? Did did the law which is good bring death to me? And his response is the same, emphatically, by no means. The law is not what brought death. Sin is what brought death. You see, what Paul is driving at is the law itself didn't kill him. Sin did. The law itself didn't produce death. Sin did. That's why Paul says the very commandment promised life proved, right? That's why Paul says the very commandment promised life proved death to me. The commandment promised life because those who keep the law and do not sin, would live. That was the promise. That was the promise in the garden given to to Adam and Eve in the covenant of works. God said to Adam, if you obey, you will live. If you violate this law, you will die. Our confession actually says that. In the 1689 Second London Baptist Confession of Faith, it reads, God created humanity um, upright and perfect and gave them a righteous law that would lead to life if they kept it, but threatened death as they broke it. The commandment promised life if they kept it, but he didn't keep it. And so the law cannot give life to those who are in sin. The commandment proves to be death because the law condemns sin. The law condemns the lawless. 
The law condemns rebellion. The law condemns disobedience. If you remember what Paul said in Romans chapter 3, the wages of sin is what? Death. What a person rightly earns by their own sin is death. A wage is the payment that you deserve. A wage is what you earn. The wages of sin is death. The law doesn't bring death. Sin does. The law simply condemns sin and those who practice it. The law condemned Paul and the rest of humanity with him because they and we were all sinners. Sinners who were defined by the sinful life that we lived. We all lived lives dominated by our sinful nature. Those who were enslaved to sin without any hope of escape. Again, what does Paul say? Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through that which is good in order that sin might be shown to be what? Sin. And through the commandment might be sinful beyond measure. The law condemns sinners to what they rightly have earned by their own sin, which is death. Sin is what produces death, and the law simply exposes that condemnation. The law reveals to those that those who are in sin actually are already condemned. Because what did Jesus himself say? John chapter 3, beginning in verse 16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God sent His Son into the world, not to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. And then He says in verse 18, Whoever believes in Him is not condemned. Why? Because by faith in Christ, our sins are atoned for, And by faith in Christ, righteousness and His perfect obedience is credited to the believer. He says, whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. Why? Because the law condemns sin and because they have not believed in the name of the only Son of God. They have not availed themselves of the only way to escape the condemnation of sin, the condemnation that the law exposes. That's why Jesus tells us that this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. You see, not only, you see, the only people who were not condemned are those who believe in Christ. The only people who were not condemned are those who have turned to Christ in repentance and faith. The people who who are not condemned, are not those who work really, really hard to obey the law. They're the ones who've turned to Jesus and placed all of their hope on Him and Him alone. And the only reason why anyone would do that is because the law of God has revealed to them what sin is and has provoked in them the sin that's already in their hearts revealing the depths of their sinful nature and revealing for them the condemnation that sin brings. It is the law of God that helps them to see the truth of who God is and and in light of that, who they are and their desperate, desperate need for God Himself to rescue them. 
And so the law then is a vital part of the gospel. It is relevant for everyone, including Christians. The law helps us to show those around us right, what they actually desperately need. They need forgiveness. They need forgiveness. Do you understand that? Everyone around you needs forgiveness. They might physically need food. They might physically need some more money. They might physically need for their car to start. But what they need, what they desperately need more than anything else is forgiveness. They need Christ's atonement. They need Christ's righteousness. And the law helps them to be pointed to that need, that need for Christ. And more than that, the law then gives us a pattern for how we ought to live in light of God's grace so that our testimony, right, of what we say and how we live are the same message. You see, nothing inhibits our witness quite like hypocrisy. How are you going to call someone to repent of sexual immorality if you're engaged in a sexual relationship with someone you're not married to? How are you going to call someone to repent of bearing false witness when you're engaged in gossip? How are you going to call someone to glorify God in their lives when you won't even gather for worship as we're commanded to do? The law of God helps us to walk our talk. It helps our speech and our actions to line up. Not that we're going to be perfect. Please, I want you to hear me on that. Not that we're going to be perfect. In fact, Paul in the next section is going to deal with, you know, the struggles we have between the flesh and the spirit. Right? But it will allow the light of God as we pursue that obedience. It will allow the light of God to shine in our lives so others will see our good works and glorify God as Jesus himself said. Also, the law of God becomes the pattern of our lives that we live by the grace-driven effort of the Holy Spirit driving us to glorify God. As our catechism states, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Our obedience to the law brings glory to God. Do you realize that? As we live as those who've been transformed into a new creation by the power of the gospel, our obedience glorifies our God in heaven. Now, with all that this morning, what what do we do with this then? As a church family, how do we take this and apply it to our lives? Well, the first thing we need to settle in our minds, the thing that we just need to agree on, the thing that we just need to just believe is the truth that the moral law is relevant for everyone, everywhere, all the time. The law of God has not been eviscerated. It is relevant for our evangelism. In fact, it's indispensable for evangelism. We must help others to see the truth of who they are and their need for Christ, period. And I'm not saying, hear me, I'm not saying you need to walk around your friends and your family all the time pointing out every instance of how they're breaking the law of God and calling them sinner and blasphemer and all kinds of other names. I just want you to understand that is not how you win friends and influence people. Okay. It's just not. I'm not saying that you need to right now go have a conversation with your cousin this afternoon about his living in sin because he's, he's living with his girlfriend. That is not going to be the way into that person's heart today. Right? What I'm saying is, as you speak the truth in love, as you begin to help them to see their need for Christ, as you share the love of Jesus with them in your actions and words and attitude, you need to help them to see that God is holy, righteous, and just, and that He requires perfection 
to be in right relationship with him. The law of God helps us to communicate that truth. And it will help them to see that they have fallen short and they desperately need Jesus. Secondly, the law of God helps us to walk in humility before God. Because the law of God reminds us where we continually fall short. It reminds us of our ongoing need for Christ. Because if you've been a Christian very long at all, you understand that you have not been perfected yet. You see, the gospel is not the beginning of the Christian life. It is the Christian life. The gospel is not the jumping off point into the Christian life. It is the Christian life. You don't just repent and believe the gospel at the beginning of your relationship with Jesus. We continually repent and believe the gospel. The law of God reminds us that we cannot live a righteous life on our own. And because of that, it reminds us of our continual daily need for Christ and His grace. Our need to continually abide in Him. Our need to continually hold on to Him. Our need to be like Peter when he started sinking in the water to cry out, Lord, save me! As the hymn writer once wrote, Nothing in my hands I bring, only to the cross of Christ do I cling. The law of God continually convicts of remaining sin and it helps us to keep our eyes where they need to be, continually on Jesus. And then finally, the law of God helps us to live for God's glory. I praise the Lord for my brother Robert who made the medallions for us and we finally got them put up on the back wall. You know, and one of the ones that speaks to my heart is soli deo gloria which is for the glory of God alone. The gospel or the law of God helps us to live for God's glory. Because Jesus summarized the law in two commandments. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And as we pursue those two commands by grace-driven efforts as the fruit of salvation, that is how we bring glory to God. When you worship the Lord, in spirit and in truth, you glorify God. When you love your neighbor, you glorify God. When you love your neighbor who is really, 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 really hard to love, you glorify God. As we grow in grace, as we seek to honor God through obedience to the law, we bring glory to God. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world.